Good morning, everyone. We'll be reading two passages of scripture this morning. First one will be Genesis chapter 1, reading from verse 26 through to chapter 2 to verse 3. And then we'll move over to 1 John chapter 2, 1 to 6. In your pew Bibles, it's easy to find Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And then we, when we reach over to 1 John, you will go to 1183. Let's begin with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps upon the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because... On it, God rested from all his work, which he had done in creation. Let's go over to 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the expiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we may be sure that we know, if we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him truly love 
for God is perfected. But by this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for Pastor Mark as he comes to speak what is what you have laid on his heart. We give you thanks for all the people who are here listening to your word, both in person and online. We pray that your special blessing be upon us as we hear and as we accept your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Michael. I encourage, I invite, I urge each of us as individuals and us as a congregation to listen intently to the next four sermons over the next four weeks. I also urge, invite, and encourage us to pray about ways our thinking ought to change and how we might step out in specific steps of practical faith to follow Jesus. As the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, wrote, and Kate read it for us last Sunday from Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse, uh, chapter 11, sorry, starting with verse 33, and then on into 12. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to his, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This means, at the very least, that this one true and living God who has shown up on our scene in the person of Jesus Christ, who saves us by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, must intervene for us. and that even for us to begin to know him and his ways. But that's definitely not all. We also need a transformation of heart and mind as well, which is why Paul, by the Holy Spirit, continues on in chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or it can be translated rational service, which would, is an interesting thing to talk about. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and complete or perfect. As I wrote in my congregational letter this week, these four sermons may be the most important I've ever preached because they flow right from God's creative heart to why he created us human beings and what he intends for us to do 
about his divine purpose. At the same time, I realize this is a hard sell, perhaps the hardest of all sales concerning the Christian faith, life, and ministry. And not only to a skeptical world, but also to many believers and churches too, who find that the Bible teaches stodgy, obsolete, irrelevant, even offensive truths. But to biblical Christians and churches, truth, life, meaning, joy, and yes, freedom. These four weeks will answer from the Bible the, the, the being question, who are we? We'll answer the meaning question, why are we here? And we'll answer the doing question, what are we to be about or, or to do about it? Who are we? Why are we here? What are we to do? We'll go a long way to answering these three most basic questions of human existence this morning, and combined with next week's sermon, we'll answer them sufficiently to live a life full of meaning, grow a family of faith, and be a church full of faith, hope, and love. No kidding. Two sermons and we're done. Well, there's four in the series, but the first two will be central and uh, pivotal. This leads us headlong into the central truth for the message of this morning, which is this. I, I read it uh, earlier in the service, but here, is one, here it is one more time. From the very beginning until the and until the return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead, every human being has been created in God's image to represent him, that is, represent God on the earth. Our title puts it more succinctly, even perhaps a bit more clearly. We are created in God's image to represent him on the earth. So this answers the being question. We are God's image on the earth. It answers the doing question. We represent God on the earth. It even answers the meaning, purpose, or place question we image God and represent him on the earth. So how are we doing out there? How are we doing imaging God and representing him on the earth in our individual lives? How are we doing imaging God and representing him on the earth as a congregation or in our families? In 2016, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons published an excellent book entitled, here it is, Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. They wrote, sensationalists are easily dismissed and for good reason. There is a lot of unwarranted fear-mongering among Christians. Yet in the midst of the hype, we think a very real story is not being told. Just in our two decades of work within the Christian community, things have happened that should cause concern, even if you're skeptical, like us, about the sky is falling narratives. The believers we know and work with are feeling significant pressure 
This is not just a set of woe is me, victim mentality perceptions Christians have cooked up for no good reason. The society we live in has not only moved away from a Christian worldview, it has become actively antagonistic toward those who seek to advance faith. The effects are starting to be felt in tangible ways. That was in 2016. I suspect their words are more true today than they were then, but my purpose in sharing them is not to alarm or even to inform us so much as to prepare us. We've seen over the last two Sundays this will get worse, not better, according to God's word in Scripture. On the one hand, the biblical Christian hand, it should thrill those who are true believers because it means the day of Jesus' return is approaching as is his day of judgment. But if we are to endure to the end, as Jesus put it, if he is to find faith on the earth when he comes, and if we are to stand in the judgment, then we must prepare now. Specifically, we must ask God to help us prepare our hearts, minds, mouths, hands, and feet, a whole being holiness, as Pastor Yuri preached about a few weeks ago, to believe, to think, to speak, to behave, and to go out into the world in a more thoroughly whole Bible manner. That's what this series of sermons is about. Biblical Christians, who are we? What does it mean and why does it matter that we human beings are uniquely created in God's image to represent him on the earth? That's what we're looking at today and the next three Sundays after that, and I hope you'll join us and invite others to do so as well. If we want to think biblically, if we want to worship and share fellowship biblically, if we want to live biblically, then we'll need to commit ourselves to several bare minimums. Here are three. We'll need to commit ourselves to the goodness, truth, and authority of the Bible for both our doctrine, what we believe and preach, and our practice, that is, for how we live. This doesn't make us anti-science or anti-history, anti-reason or anti-logic, anti-human or anti-fun, or even anti-sex. It does mean these values and all other categories of meaning we could think of are subordinate to God's revealed word in Scripture. For example, if the Bible teaches that God created all that exists ex nihilo, out of, me, out of nothing, by the power of his word, and it does, then that's what we believe. That's what we teach and that actually gives us insight to interpret the discoveries of science. Secondly, we'll also commit ourselves to ongoing change and nothing should be exempt. Now, I'm not speaking of methodological or even behavioral change, at least not at first. The sort of change the Holy Spirit speaks of in Romans 8, of being conformed to the image of God's Son, and again in Romans 12, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, happens from the inside out by the truth 
and life in God's word and presence and power of the Holy Spirit. On this topic some time ago, I heard John Piper exclaim, I certainly hope I didn't actually know everything worth knowing when I was 25. His point and my point is that even on matters of doctrine, not on fundamental matters for sure, we should not only be growing old in the faith, but actually growing in Christian faith, doctrine and practice according to a better, deeper, richer, fuller, more genuine, truer understanding of Jesus, who is God's word in the flesh. Thirdly, we'll also commit to understanding and accepting that all human beings have been created in God's image, every one, to represent him on the earth. We can agree with David in Psalm 139.6 that we heard earlier this morning. We even sang it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is too lofty. We cannot attain it. But if we are to be biblical Christians, if we understand and accept this vital truth about ourselves and every human being will ever meet, because that's precisely what the Bible teaches us, then we can begin to relate to each other, to the world, and to the whole of creation properly in a way that honors God and that brings us into true life and true freedom. Now, it might surprise you, especially in a sermon one of four, on a fundamental biblical Christian truth that we human beings, each and every one of us, are created uniquely and deliberately by God in Christ Jesus in his own image to represent him on the earth. So hear me say our creation, our creation is vital, but it's not the most important truth on this topic. The most important truth on this subject is the truth about who God is. In whose image have we been created? And who is this God whom we are to represent on the earth? Well, the first thing that I'd have us see in the text for this morning, and it's just three verses, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, is this. The one true and living God in Christ Jesus, in whose image all human beings have been uniquely created, is an eternally perfect union of three persons, eternally residing in a relationship of perfectly holy love, purposeful unity, and singular action. One more time. The one true and living God in Christ Jesus, in whose image all human beings have been uniquely created, is an eternally perfect union of three persons, eternally residing in a relationship of perfectly holy love, purposeful unity, and singular action. Look there at the text, Genesis chapter 1. Verse, the first half of verse 26. Then God said, let us make man or mankind in our image after our likeness. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, there will be purists 
who hear my summary of God's revealed identity here as the one true and living God in Christ Jesus and object saying, we're in Genesis 1. There's no in Christ Jesus here. There's not even the true and living here. There's just God. And they would be right in some strictly academic Hebrew textual kind of a way. Except really there's not God here either, but God's. You see, the term translated God here in our English text is not El, which is God, singular, but Elohim, which is God's, plural. It literally means God's. It's a plural noun. Perhaps you'll remember my sermons in which I called this term for God and this situation here, this construct in Genesis 1, as a singular plurality or a plural singularity. It's both. Well, the God of the Hebrew Bible is revealed to be a plurality, gods, who, who, who takes a singular verb, and Elohim, gods, said. Singular verb. For example, so there's something about this particular God that is plural in identity and singular in action. That's a pretty good summary of this point. If you, if you want a summary that's easy to remember, plural in identity, singular in action. Furthermore, there is no explanation of this curious construct in the Hebrew text. A plural noun, gods, that always, always, always takes a singular verb, but only, only, only when it refers to the one true and living God of the Hebrew text, the Elohim of Israel. So God is, in some way, unknown to the Hebrews, unknown to the Hebrew text, because it's not explicitly stated, that we learn later in the New Testament revelation, ah, oh, there it is, God's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but singular action, one being. Not three gods, but one in three persons, in singular action, in singular purpose. And just to be clear, the plural term Elohim is used elsewhere in the Hebrew text with a proper plural verb to describe, for example, the false gods of the nations. So whenever it takes a plural verb, you know it's not the God of Israel, it's, it's the false gods of the nations, for example. But the God of the Hebrew text, the one true and living God of Israel, never takes a plural verb. Elohim says. So once again, the God of the Hebrew text, the one true and living God, is always, always, always described in this way as a plurality in identity, but a singularity in action. Now, it doesn't take a biblical Christian very long at all to realize this isn't a reading into the text so much as it is a seeing what is right there in the text. In fact, not to see it requires us to forget and ignore what we all know about the New Testament revelation. So when Jesus is revealed in New Testament scripture as the word made flesh, who was in the beginning, was with God, and was God, through whom all things were made, and as 
our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, it doesn't take hardly any effort or insight at all to see the Trinity working here. In concert, God as plurality and identity and singularity in action, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Now, some of you brighter people already see where I'm going, and you're right. If the God, Elohim, in whose image we human beings are uniquely created, is an eternally perfect union of three persons, eternally residing in relationships of perfect holy love, purposeful unity, and singular action, then our most biblical state is to acknowledge our identity as a plurality, the human race, our families, the church, watch this now, while deciding, choosing, acting as one. And if you should think I'm overstating or suggesting an overrealization of the case in Scripture, as if such a unity of purpose is impossible because of our plurality, let's consider Jesus' prayer to his Father for us just a short time before his trial and death. This is from John 17, verses 20 and 21, and also 22b and 23. Jesus speaking here, praying to the Father, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be us. As they, or, or rather that they, that we, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Can't you just hear? Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become, that we may become perfectly one. I in them and you in me, that they may become, that they may become, that we may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and I loved them even as you loved me. I don't know about you, but reading those accounts back to back, Genesis 1 and John 20, or John 17 rather, they sound a whole lot alike. It's almost like Jesus was there in Genesis 1. And he was, of course. And so we should believe it, and we should teach it, and we should stand on it, and we should live it as best we can in our time and place. I might just add a contemporary note here. We need to get back, and I mean the church in general. I'm not speaking to Bethesda in particular, but as, as far as Bethesda is included in the church of Jesus Christ, we need to get back to understanding, accepting, and applying this truth that yes, we are a plurality and so is God. Therefore, we need to get back to a singularity of action as he also is. Friends, there are so many potential fault lines along which we can be fractured today, and they're growing daily, it seems, 
and many are falling into them as if we could do no other. But fragmentation in the church is not inevitable. It's preventable. We can choose purposeful unity. Because we have God's word and God's Holy Spirit, we can choose singularity of action, though we are so obviously plural. So once again, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, in whose image all human beings have been uniquely created, is an eternally perfect union of three persons, eternally residing in a relationship of perfect holy love, purposeful unity, and singular action. Now, that was by far the single most important part of the sermon and the longest and of this series. And we can know and we can aspire to emulate the identity and character of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus from these verses. And we are created in his image, but there's more. The second thing that I would have us to, to process here this morning, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus has created human beings, mankind, to image his character and purposes, thus representing him on the earth. Look with me at verse 26b. So I'll just read the whole 26, but uh, the, second, the second sentence, which is quite a bit longer, is our, is our reference text for this next couple of minutes. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them, notice, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Two key words and concepts here in the second half of verse 26. Dominion and on or over the earth. We are created in God's very own image to have dominion over the earth and on the earth. This is God's authority. He delegated his authority to human beings for this purpose as a stewardship. It's not our authority. It's his sovereign authority delegated to us to steward the earth according to his character and will. This is how we human beings, and especially we biblical human beings, we Christian human beings, if the name fits, ought to be stewarding the earth and all that we've been given that we call ours. That is, in a way that reflects God's care, concern, and love for his creation, because we are the only creatures God has uniquely created in his own image to represent him on the earth. It's our unique responsibility to do this. And I won't ask us how we we're doing because we're not doing very well in this regard. But it's one of the fundamental aspects of what it means to be created in the image of God to represent him on the earth. It's to steward well all that he has given us and to do so according to his character, according to his word. So the one true and living God in Christ Jesus has created human beings, mankind, 
to image his character and purposes, thus representing him on the earth. There's a third profound and profoundly important truth that we are losing our grip on, I'm afraid. And it's in verse 27. Let's look at it. So God created mankind, or this could refer to Adam because Adam was created first. So this is, this is not as clearly mankind. This may well mean Adam. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And, and then the next line, male and female, he created them. So I think probably in this text, Adam is uh, an, an exemplar, a progenitor. And we'll get to that in a minute. The big word, progenitor. Um, but the clear meaning of the text is that God created all human beings, male and female, in his image to represent him on the earth. Well, this is the ground upon which much of the culture wars have been fought over the years, over the decades, and over the centuries, and especially today. In the church, outside the church, against the church, the church against our fellow human beings in the world, and none of that should be so. I say it should not be so because we in the church should have such a confidence in the God whose image we bear that residing as one, fulfilling his purposes and representing him on the earth should be enough for us. Later on in chapter 8 of Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? We don't have to go looking to find a fight. Even still, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. That's Ephesians 6, verse 12. And as we see here in the text, let's keep in mind that this intention of God, this purpose of God, this gift and ideal of God in our creation is before the fall of humanity into sin. And the sin brought all manner of death and disease and disorder and dissembling. But look at what the text actually says. So Elohim created, singular, man in his own image, could be Adam, could be mankind, either one works, either one is true. In the image of Elohim, he, singular, created him, probably meaning Adam here. Oh, but wait, male and female, he created them. So we have to do business with this text, which was before the fall. God intentionally, personally, deliberately created mankind, male, and female, that they, that's what it says, that they should have dominion over the fish of the sea. That's verse 26. And over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the, on the, on the earth. And frankly, we haven't done very well with this. In the church, I mean. We've gone overboard on one side or the other 
Both of them are places to drown rather than staying in the boat of Scripture. And we need to, to fix that. We'll talk about that more next week. So once again, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus created the first human beings, male and female, in his own image, deliberately and personally, as the progenitors of all other human beings. Finally, the fourth and last truth from this few verses isn't, short, isn't shorter or easier, but still, verse 4, the replication of God's character. The replication of God's character, purposes, and dominion on the earth through natural, God-given means of reproduction are fundamental aspects of our unique and purposeful creation in the image of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus. Verse 28. And Elohim blessed them. And Elohim said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We'll talk about sex more next week. There's a teaser, isn't it? But for now... Let me just say that I think the time has long passed when Christians and churches can get away with not talking about sex. Indeed, it's my personal conviction that one of the significant contributing factors to the confusion about sex in the world today and the outright rejection of the biblical Christian case for sex is that we haven't talked about it, and me too. I think one of the reasons we haven't talked about it in our families and in the church is that so many of us have failed in so many ways to live up to what we know to be the biblical Christian model and standard of appropriate sexual relations, and me too. So how can we be preachy about something that we have not fulfilled ourselves? That's a good and appropriate question, but here's the thing. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We literally become new creations when we come to Christ. If we're carrying shame and guilt, we're carrying it unnecessarily and wrongly. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And while verse 28 is not a manual on sex, of course, Go to Song and Solomon for that. That's as close as it gets. It does point to sexual reproduction as given by God, as blessed by God, even commanded by God for those of us created in his own image, which is all human beings. And it's part of God's creative purpose for us. Look at it once again, and we're almost done. And God, Elohim, blessed them. And God, Elohim, said to them, all of this, I just want us to, to note, all of this is plurality of identity, 
singularity of action. Be fruitful. So there weren't three voices. There was one voice here. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see here once again the replication of God's character, purposes, and dominion on the earth through natural God-given means of reproduction are fundamental aspects of our unique and purposeful creation in the image of the one true and living God in Christ Jesus. Next Sunday, we'll see and talk more about the creation of human beings, male and female. Y'all come back now, you hear? Let's pray. God, thank you for your ongoing revelation to us of yourself. And we can even say of your word. You continue to give us understanding as we seek it. You continue to give us truth by faith if we'll live it. Help us to be both confident and humble, both strong and gentle, truth speakers and mercy givers. Forgive us when we haven't been on balance those things, when we've gone to the one side or the other and denied the other. Help us, Lord, to be your people in this place and at this time, for we have no other. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'd like for us to hear as we're leaving this morning as an encouragement to be imitators of God, some of my, yes, favorite verses. Um, from my favorite book, Ephesians, chapter 4, starting with verse 30. I didn't have it marked, so I need to get there quickly. Hear, Hear the word of God from Ephesians. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then picking up at verses 15, 16, and 17, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Lord, we thank you for these words. Help us to take them to heart, to seek to imitate you in our lives, at home, at work, in our neighborhoods, in your church being your true people, disciples of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Good morning, thank you very much. We'll see you next time.